Welcome to Nurturing Nature, the official podcast for the Quarry Lane Environmental Club. My name is Romal Mitter, and I'm the moderator and host for Nurturing Nature. In this episode, we are honored to have the co-founder of Herbicide Free Cal, a company that envisions a toxin-free world created by student action. Herbicide Free Campus empowers the next generation of student leaders to create a more sustainable living environment for all by starting locally and advocating for organic land care on their campuses. With a degree in molecular environmental biology and minors in human rights and forestry and natural resource management, Bridget works with Herbicide Free Campus to support student fellows by developing resources slash educational curriculum. It is with great honor that we welcome Bridget Gustafson onto this podcast. Hello, Bridget. Hey, Romo. Hey, Hannah. It's great to be here with you guys. Bridget, can you tell us a little bit about how you entered the field of sustainability and decided to found your own organization? Yes. Well, I must mention that it was me and Mackenzie Feldman, who um, is my partner in crime. She was on my beach volleyball team back at Cal, so at UC Berkeley. And it was actually at one of these practices that, um, you know, kind of inspired the the beginning of Herbicide Free Cal because we got to practice one day um, and our coaches told us, you know, if you hit a ball over in this area next to the courts, don't go and get it. They just sprayed something. There's like, we just have to wait 24 hours. And then we just kind of moved on with the rest of practice. And Mackenzie and I, so I grew up in Illinois knowing, you know, monoculture, knowing crop duster planes, and Mackenzie grew up in Hawaii, which, you know, is just ridden with pesticides. So we were both pretty familiar with the potential dangers of herbicides and pesticides, and so kind of took pause when our coaches said, don't go and get these balls because it could be, we could, it could be dangerous, right? Um, And so... We did some investigating. We called the grounds crew. We just asked around and found out that um, they had been spraying an herbicide that contained glyphosate, which is um, in 2015 was proven by IARC to be a probable carcinogen. And so you might imagine that that, you know, sparked a just a lot of um, caution for Mackenzie and I and kind of um, just, we had a lot of questions about why they'd be spraying this around students, particularly around athletes. You know, we were all women in reproductive age, like an age that was really important for our reproductive health, for our neurodevelopment. Um, And we were spending more than 30 30 hours a week in this area, right? Um, Because we have practice. And so you ask how, how I, got to be in sustainability and how um, we decided to found this. And I would say that, you know, some people might view this as um, circumstance, like it just happened that, you know, we showed up to practice one day and had this um, relationship with herbicides. I also want to say that um, it took us feeling in our gut that something wasn't right, and it took us acting on that um, for us to move forward with herbicide free cow. And so when we felt that something wasn't right and we contacted the groundskeepers and that 
that was the origin of this whole thing. And so we talked to them and asked them, you know, what they needed to stop spraying. And we came up, we said, okay, we'll get our team to hand weed so you guys don't have to apply herbicides. Um, and just developed, took that model to the rest of campus and expanded it. Um, but I just really want to highlight that, you know, we come into contact or we come into relationship with um, sustainability efforts or the areas for potential for sustainability efforts every single day. Like we eat three times a day, right? There's so much work to be done in that. We put on clothes every single day. There's a lot of work for sustainability for that. We get in a car, um, et cetera. And so I, I don't think that this was just by luck of the draw that Mackenzie and I fell into the herbicide work. It's because it, we took action and because we, we kind of followed this line of questioning of something that didn't feel right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so great to hear. So would you say that you entered the, the field of sustainability more based on your context or would you say that from an early age you've always been interested in various environmental ideas and concepts and being sustainable? That's a great question. I think why sustainability and why this particular issue of herbicides is because growing up I had a lot of family members who um, had been diagnosed with cancer, who had some form of illness that has since been related to pesticide exposure. And so, you know, it was seeing when I was young the illness and the effects of, um, kind of like the after effects of herbicides. And then it was in college when I was able to kind of contextualize, oh, this, these are the reason why we had to witness the suffering and the hurt and the illness that I had, you know, grown up around. Um, and so I think it, it's kind of a combination of the both. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, so mm -hmm. can you also just explain to us a little bit more about Herbicide-Free Campus's mission and what you hope to accomplish through your organization? Absolutely, yeah. So Herbicide-Free Campus, as you um, so beautifully read, is we're really just hoping to empower the next generation of environmental leaders. And so we have a fellowship model um, that's 12 months long, and so we work with university campuses, or sorry, not just university campuses. We also work with high school students, um, but educational institutions because we see them as just a, you know, the perfect place for change to happen because it's driven by youth, it's driven by passion. Um, and we think that, you know, educational institutions will always be at the forefront of pushing change. Um, and so we hope by educating um, and empowering student leaders, they can collaborate with groundskeepers on their campuses. And so it, it creates this passing of knowledge of between groundskeepers and between students. Um, and, you know, ultimately through this collaboration and through the sharing of wisdom and um, passion that you know we we all have we hope that more campuses will go herbicide free so right now um, 
our fellowship model is that we take six schools every single year and we work with them for 12 months. And we kind of devote all of our resources and all of our, um, all of our energy into preparing them to be the best that they can be. Because, you know, while we're looking at um, this through the herbicide lens, ultimately we want our students to know how to do direct organizing and how to write op-eds and how to um, collaborate with authority figures to make them leaders no matter where they go, no matter if it's they're going to continue fighting and advocating for um, the reduction of herbicides or if they're going to find another cause. Um, we just really want to, you know, teach grassroots organizing um, so that they can be leaders in their own field. Yeah, I think that's a really novel goal. Um, so thank you for sharing that. It's so amazing to see and hear that what began as a local environmental initiative has really grown into such a large organization. So can you tell us a bit about your journey with Herbicide Free Campus as it has grown and how you have helped it flourish? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, it began, it began really small. We had, I think, 12 of my teammates um, hand weeding next to the groundskeepers on our beach volleyball courts and then saw how successful that was and kind of had the idea we're like okay you know this worked and we were really able to develop a friendly working relationship with the grounds crew um, and they told us they said you know a big hesitation that we have towards not using herbicides is that we just don't have the labor and we don't have the workforce to um, hand pull these weeds. And we said, okay, great. We have a whole student body that we can mobilize. And so we moved our mission and this collaborative model between us and the groundskeepers to main campus. And we focused on the two main spaces on our campus that um, students most frequented. So it's called Memorial Glade, right? And that's where everybody's playing Frisbee and um, setting up hammocks and reading and studying. And we said, okay, let's, let's try to tackle this area and reduce the risk of exposure to all of the students and all the faculty and people who use this area um, with the same model of collaboration. And so, you know, our first weeding day, we had maybe like eight volunteers and then it continued to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow um, until now, you know, a great, a great majority of the green spaces on UC Berkeley's campuses are maintained completely without the use of herbicides. And that's due to a continuous relationship between the groundskeepers and the students. Um, and so this is really the core of the model that we took to other campuses. And so, this model of collaboration between groundskeepers and students um, has been the, you know, um, the very crux of, of what we do. And in addition, you know, we're also petitioning and campaigning and doing a bunch of advocacy um, more in the legislative side on this, um, in tandem with, with this more um, direct hands-on, direct hands-on work. Yeah, it's really inspiring to hear how all of this was student-driven. Mm -hmm. So, 
can you explain a little bit more about the detrimental environmental consequences of herbicides on both humans and flora and fauna in the region? Absolutely, yeah. So, an, I don't want to say an interesting fact, but a perhaps upsetting or sad fact is that herbicides were invented actually in World War II as a um, product of war because they, um, the American military wanted to um, kill all of the um, mosquitoes that carried malaria that were killing U.S. soldiers. And so that was the, the um, origin of DDT, which is one of the most well-known um, pesticides. I'm sh you guys might be familiar. Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring based on DDT. Um, and that since has been completely banned um, by the federal government because it was found to uh, cause cancer and just have serious, serious detriment to um, birds, to fauna, to flora. Um, it just basically killed everything. And um, so basically what we, what we have now on the market are just new iterations, new chemical iterations of this original um, DDT, of this original um, chemical that was meant for war. And, um, you know, each of the different chemicals have, or each of the different herbicides has different targets. Um, so they're going to affect flora and fauna differently. The most widely used one, glyphosate, which you guys might have heard of in um, the recent lawsuits that against Monsanto, um, which by the way, Monsanto lost, or Monsanto and Bayer, and they are now paying many billions of dollars back to groundskeepers and home gardeners and other people who have used their products and developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which is a type of cancer as a result of exposure. And so that obviously is a very, very, very serious health effect to humans. Um, and I'm sure you can imagine, or you can only imagine what, you know, if it's doing that to humans, what it's able to do in the environment as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you for sharing the history. I'm not sure a lot of people would have known about the history of pesticides and its applications in war. And I think a lot of people, in fact, don't think about how um, these pesticides just kind of build up in the environment and bioaccumulate in um, various tissues of various organisms. So could you speak a little bit more about um, bioaccumulation and how that poses more of an issue? That's, that's a really great really great idea um, or point and I'll give you an example so I um, live in Louisiana and there is a lot a lot a lot of herbicide use here and what's also here is the Mississippi River so if you can imagine um, a farmer spraying their their land with herbicides and let's say it rains and that rain you know, comes down on the field and washes that chemical and then it washes into the nearest watershed, right? So into the nearest river or waterway. And it takes, you know, those herbicides, those chemicals along with it. And um, the fish that are in the waterway or any other organisms are then exposed to that glyphosate. And so what's important to note is that um, Glyphosate, the most widely used chemical, or sorry, the most widely used herbicide, and I think it's 
and the United States, somewhere in the ballpark of 1.8 billion pounds per year are used. So this is like, this is some serious, serious, serious quantity that we're talking about. It's not just, you know, spraying on your garden. Um, but that um, chemical will get into the fat tissues of fish, right? And so with every passing exposure, they're getting more and more and more glyphosate in their fat tissue and building that up. And then when a fisher reels one in, you know, it, this fish is a product of all of the weeks and months and years, or however long it's lived, of glyphosate buildup, right? So it's kind of this living organism that's showing you how much glyphosate has been um, deposited in this waterway. And then you, as the consumer, if you eat the, the fat of the fish, which many people do, are ingesting that. Um, and the same goes with like Cheerios or wheat or things that are, um, you know, then sprayed with glyphosate and then get processed. Yeah, that's really saddening to hear. I don't think many people know about that. So with regard to that, do you think that technological advances would help alleviate these harmful effects of herbicides? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. And um, I think that if we look at the very advent of pesticides, which, um, like we mentioned, was this product of war, that was a technological advance, right? And so um, I think something to note is that a lot of glyph or sorry, a lot of herbicides are used to maintain lawns or if we're thinking about university campuses or your high school's campus, um, those lawns, those beautiful green, like completely the same um, homogenous lawns are probably maintained with herbicides, right? So that no weeds grow, no, no dandelions grow. Um, and the thing about lawns is that they typically are not native to the area. So there is um, kind of a staggering fact is that the United States, if you look at land mass, um, our biggest crop, quote unquote, that the United States grows is grass, is lawn. If you're just looking at, um, you know, uh, land use. And so if we were to return a lot of those areas, a lot of those lawns to what they once were, so to their kind of native, um, their native species. So back home in Illinois, where I'm from, you know, that would be more prairie grass, um, cattail, different things like that. Whereas in California, it would be a different um, ground cover that was more adapted to drier climate, to um, hotter temperatures. And then where I am in Louisiana now, it would be something completely different, right? But what we see in all three of those different places is the same grass. So that grass requires... Um, in California requires a lot of water. So, you know, you see people's sprinklers. It also requires a lot of herbicides and it requires a lot of fertilizer because it's not meant to grow there, right? So you kind of have to add all these external inputs so that it's able to grow. Um, and where I'm going with all this is that these are all technical, technological advances that have been made. The synthesis of 
herbicides in order to maintain the lawn. So synthesis of fertilizers and different things. Um, so I would say if we were to take a step back and allow um, you know, the native landscape to do what it does, there would be, we would almost completely, I mean, we would diminish the use of any herbicides at all. So it's, it's been along with the synthesis of herbicides and this technology that all these other technology and chemical inputs have had to also be developed in order to sustain um, the industry of, of herbicides. Yeah, thank you for that um, perspective. I think that's really a great point that you bring up, that many types of these new invasive species have to be controlled through herbicides, so it's sort of like an endless cycle almost. Yeah. Um, so I know that in particular, through Herbicide Free Campus, you're working on developing an educational curriculum. So can you tell us specifically why you are drawn to the educational aspect of environmentalism? You know, my, my boss um, at my my current job that I do in tandem with Herbicide Free Campus, she said something that has really stuck with me. And she says, when you know better, you do better. And I think that with education comes so much liberation, right? And comes, it comes the ability to, um, to act, right? Because like the story that I was telling you earlier about how Mackenzie and I began this campaign, it took um, us having prior knowledge about what herbicides are and the dangers they pose. And it, it took the education that I had received in seeing people's illnesses from these herbicides. Um, it took that knowledge and that education for us to know to act. And so in educating people, in spreading advocacy and generating awareness. Um, I think we offer people the choice to act. And I, you know, I think particularly with um, herbicides, which are a very, it's not a super well-known issue, right? Topic. Um, it's pretty hard to, to disagree with, you know, the facts that spraying carcinogens on playgrounds and on areas where young kids and students and people are playing and working and eating, right? Like, I think a lot of people would agree, like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to spray carcinogens there, but it takes them knowing that that's what's being sprayed or that these are the harmful effects um, in order for them to want to act. Yeah, I agree with that. It really does take some personal experience and education to realize that what your current practices are are not as sustainable as they could be and that they really do need to change. Mm -hmm. So in order to help stay informed of these various environmental issues, just kind of relaying off of our previous educational discussion, what sources would you recommend for our audience to use? You know, there's, there's a wealth of information out there. Um, I would really recommend Beyond Pesticides. Um, they have a phenomenal website where if you're um, a student or if you're a parent or, um, you know, if you want, even if you like own a golf course, they have all these different toolkits and um, informational resources about, number one, how to find out what's being sprayed in your area, in your town, by your school. Once you find out what is being sprayed, they give you um, 
toolkits and resources to um, push back against that and to offer alternatives, more sustainable alternatives, how to campaign. Um, we also have information on our website on Herbicide Free Campus, different resources, different um, trainings we've developed with experts in the field, be it about organic land care maintenance or be it about how to publish an op-ed in your local newspaper to get people to know about this. Um, in addition, I would look at recent lawsuits. So the Johnson versus Monsanto um, lawsuit. That does a, um, I don't think there's a more powerful example that I've seen of the, the health effects um, that, or the health consequences that herbicides can, can incur. Yeah, so thank you so much, Bridget, for those wise words. I would now like to turn it over to Hannah Yu, who will be taking questions from the audience. So hi, Bridget. It is so wonderful and inspiring to hear a little bit about your background and the work that you and Herbicide Free Campus um, have done. So our audience and our club members have sent in a few questions that I would now like to ask you. So firstly, um, we kind of just want to touch on this topic of more large scale and more more discussed topics like climate change or melting polar ice caps or ocean acidification um, compared to the lesser known uh, topics like the use of herbicides and pesticides. So we received a question from Kayla and she wants to know why you think it's also important to address these more focused but by no lean but by no means less important issues like the use of herbicides and other unsustainable agricultural practices? Well, Kayla has a very great question. Um, and I would also push back against, you know, this being a quote unquote smaller scale issue. Um, if we think about herbicides and where it lies at the intersection of all of these different um, fields and all of these different issues. So if we take agriculture, right? Our entire agricultural system, not just in the U.S., but globally, is completely dependent on herbicides. Um, and so what that means is that the manufacturing of seeds and um, GMOs, the genetically modified organisms, all of that is intrinsically tied to herbicides because GMOs oftentimes um, are genetically modified so that they are the one plant that survives when they spray an herbicide. So all of the other flora and fauna and weeds around them will be, will be killed, except for this one genetically modified thing that has been specifically genetically um, altered so that it can survive the spraying. So that's one thing. Um, and you know, as we know, GMOs and the way that monoculture is set up, that contributes vastly to um, greenhouse gas emissions and um, climate change. And then there's also the aspect of racial justice and environmental justice. And, you know, if we're thinking about landscapers and if we're thinking about farm workers, oftentimes, you know, these are members of the black and brown communities who are being exposed at the highest level because they're risking 
um, occupational exposure where they come to work every single day and are exposed um, to these chemicals. And so, you know, that's another intersection. And if we're thinking about pollinator health, right? Butterflies, especially in California where the, um, you know, the almond industry is so huge. Monarch butterflies and bees are being killed at just staggering numbers by the application of herbicides. So it's, we really sit at the center of, you know, all of these different big, um, big ticket issues, quote unquote. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful perspective on, you know, the intersectionality, not just between environmental justice, but also with human populations and social justice. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we actually received another question from Prajanya, and you touched on this a little bit in your previous answer, but uh, do you have anything to add on GMOs and their correlation with herbicides? Um, yeah, like I mentioned before, I mean, GMOs and herbicides go hand in hand, right? They're designed so that one is dependent on the other. And so it just creates forced dependence for farmers to both purchase the genetically modified seed as well as the um, herbicide that's correlated with that seed. Um, and so it's just another way that agrochemical companies and the um, manufacturers of these herbicides have ensured that um, farmers kind of have to use their, both their seeds and their chemicals. And so they change these formulas and they change these seeds every single year so that the cycle never ends because once you buy the seed, then you have to buy the chemical. Um, and they put patents on the seeds so that they're, the farmers are required to buy them every new year. And do you think that, you know, as we move forward with, you know, environmentalism, do you think that there could be changes implemented in huge industries like the agricultural industry? Do you think that, you know, those changes would be feasible to take a step away from GMOs and herbicides on the larger scale? You know, I'm, I'm very, very hopeful. And, you know, a really great resource, so circling back, um, is Vandana Shiva. And so she is an Indian activist and um, she's actually a formally trained physicist and feminist, um, sorry, feminist <clears throat> advocate. And she has developed Navadanya University, which is um, a completely herbicide-free and organic, um, they call it uh, Earth University, about how to scale up um, organic practices. And there are so, so, so many examples of, um, you know, people doing the work and people doing landscaping or doing farming without using any pesticides. I mean, look at many of the documentaries where it's like the biggest little farm and um, there's just a whole litany as well as we can look at university campuses that have gone herbicide free, right? You see Berkeley, Harvard, the six schools we're working with now, Loyola, Marymount University, Seattle, UT Austin. It's like these examples are becoming more than just examples. It's becoming um, a platform and almost an expectation, right? And so that is what makes me hopeful is because we've seen that Ber that herbicide-free cow, that Berkeley, is not just a unique, uniquely situated area that this was able to work. It's able to work everywhere, right? 
And do you think other sustainable forms of agriculture, just like simple things like crop rotation, would also um, lessen the need for various types of herbicides? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of practices that are that exist now that kill um, soil health or really, really, really hurt soil health. And there's been a huge shift in the way that farmers, even farmers, you know, where I come from in the Midwest and where I am at now in the Deep South, who are conventional farmers, so they use, um, you know, herbicides like glyphosate, but they're beginning to see the importance of the soil health. And they recognize all the microbes and living organisms within the soil because they see that when those things die, they have a worse crop that year. And so I'm speaking from a podcast that I've actually gotten to do where I interview farmers um, who are conventional farmers, so who use herbicides in their day-to-day activities, but um, who are seeing that, you know, they need to build up the soil health in order to grow their most productive crop and then obviously get the most income. Um, And so, yes, I do think that these large, these large scale um, industries are being, are seeing, are now our dependence on herbicides as, um, as failing them now, right? Because they're seeing that their crop yields are reducing and and such. I yeah, I thought your perspective on how you know more conventional farmers are really starting to see sort of the detriment detrimental effects of using herbicides and. They're trying to find ways to sort of lessen that dependence. So I think that's really interesting. Um, our next question is from Joey and Mackenzie, who want to know what you believe are the best steps that youth can take uh, to ensure a toxin-free world. Big questions you guys have. I love it. Um, I would say ask questions. Um, I, I feel like I'm beating on a dead horse, but like I mentioned, none of this would have began if... Mackenzie and I didn't follow an intuition that, you know, we were like, hmm, this feel this feels wrong that we're not able to go step in this area that had just been sprayed, right? And so that we allowed our curiosity to lead us to action. Um, and so if there's something, you know, that you see just when you're walking, if you go to sports practice or if you're walking down the street or whatever, Allow yourself to ask that question and be curious and pursue it because, you know, that that's what leads you to to things like herbicide-free campus, or that's what leads you to um, finding out that you know your your neighborhood park is being sprayed with a chemical that you're not okay with, or that you feel like would harm your family, your younger siblings, um, etc. So, I think staying curious and allowing yourself to pursue those those questions yeah that's really inspiring thank you so I definitely agree I think we should continue to pursue our passions and also you know stay on the lookout for new things that we could not only learn about but also you know help for our society so thank you Um, and we have one final question from Sachi and Alina and they want to know more about your personal experiences overcoming some of the obstacles that you have encountered when creating and you know maintaining herbicide-free cal. I would say that 
one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is um, effective communication. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we first went to the groundskeepers and we found out that they were spraying glyphosate, you know, we, we, we asked them for a, a follow-up meeting after that and kind of came to them just like, you know, up in arms. We had printed out like sheets and sheets and sheets of all of the studies that were pointing to the detriments of um, glyphosate on human health, on pollinator health, et cetera, et cetera. And we're just like, how could you be spraying this stuff? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and as you might imagine, you know, that didn't, that wasn't received great. And there's a lot, there's a few reasons why that wasn't received great. One, um, the people we were talking to didn't have the jurisdiction. This wasn't under their decision-making capabilities, right? They were being told by somebody, like somebody higher up to spray the herbicides and they just had to. And so they were at the highest risk of being exposed, right? Because like I mentioned earlier, the occupational exposure. Um, and also they had, they, their hands were tied. So us coming in and barging and being all um, up in arms really served no purpose for them. And so it took, I'll tell you, it took quite a bit of emailing after that. Every time we would email them after that, no response, no response, no response, no response which I'm sure as a human you can imagine because who likes being barraged or told, you know, that they're doing something wrong, right? Um, and I'll tell you that there was one day where, you know, I was just like, oh, gosh. I, you know, I was so out of ideas and then it's just like, okay, I just need, we just need to approach this as we're approaching other human beings and that, like, let that be it. And so we typed up an email that was, how can we best support you? What, you know, what do you need help with in order to reduce the use of herbicides? And so we didn't come to them this time with all the facts about the reasons why they shouldn't be spraying this. We came to them with an offer of, look, we know that, you know, you know what this field is like. We're not landscapers. We're not groundskeepers. What we do know is that we don't want these chemicals sprayed, both for the safety of you as the grounds crew and for the safety of the larger campus. And so how can we help? And 10 minutes later, we got an email. This is like not a made up story. Literally 10 minutes later, got an email back that said, okay, let's talk. We can meet for coffee at Cafe Milano. Like see you these dates. Um, and so I think that totally changed things. Um, and allowed us to see this as a collaboration and as something larger than just um, any one individual spraying this harmful chemical because it's more than just the individual, right? It's the cultural practices we're used to. It's the groundskeeper that learned from the groundskeeper before them, that learned from the groundskeeper before them, that got the, chem the glyphosate from, you know, the chemical salesman, whatever. And so it's, it's disrupting that, um, learned knowledge, I guess, through through this positive language. Yeah, that's really, I think that's really helpful advice for anyone who's looking to sort of collaborate with others and in, with the goal of helping solve some sort of issue that they see in their community. So thank you for sharing us, sharing with us that story about how effective communication can really sort of change your approach 
to talking with others and also solving the problems that you know you think uh, really need to be addressed in these communities so thank you so much yeah, so Bridget, your story is extremely inspirational. It's so amazing to hear how you stood up for what you believed in and how you were really able to spread your organization's mission to other school campuses across the United States and make a larger impact. Uh, I think you're such a role model for many people across the world as your drive to create a sustainable earth is really genuine and just diffuses out of your uh, positivity. So do you have any final words or advice that you can leave our audience with and especially youth who are looking to engage with environmentalism on a deeper level? I would say believe that you as an individual can create change. You know, that, that might sound silly, but you know, Mackenzie and I, we looked up after, you know, practice and kind of doing that whole thing with the groundskeepers. And we looked up five years later after working, working, working and saw all of these universities that we had been able to partner with and all of these students that, you know, had been mobilized, all these groundskeepers that were relearning landscaping that had just been all of that change had been created by the question that we asked, right? And um, I say, I don't want to say this to put the um, responsibility on the individual because Mackenzie and I didn't, didn't have success with this because of us as individuals and because we were exceptional. That is the furthest thing from the truth. It's because we asked for help. Um, so there's just like literally hundreds of people that I could give just as much credit to them for making Herbicide Free Campus what it is today as I could to either Mackenzie and I. Um, and so it's two things, that um, believing you as an individual can make change, and that change is created by shouldering the burden with others and shouldering the weight and the work and the, um, the passion and the drive. I think that's really great advice. So thank you so much for your time, Bridget. It was such a great opportunity to have you speak on our podcast. That's a wrap on today's episode of Nurturing Nature. Thank you once again to Bridget for her insight and time. You can learn more about Bridget's work and her company by visiting herbicidefreecampus.org. Please check out our latest magazine edition of Wild and Wondrous and stay tuned for our future episodes of Nurturing Nature.